Right, Beezer. Thank you so much for joining me on this Media Masterminds podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. I think it's a fascinating topic. Awesome. So want to kick it off. Tell us who you are uh, and, and what you do. Sure. So I'm Beezer Clarkson with Sapphire Partners. And Sapphire Partners is the LP arm of Sapphire. So what we do as a team is we invest in early stage venture funds, emerging and established US, Europe, and Israel. And I personally have been doing venture in some form or another, predominantly LP side for the last 15 years, but started my career in 2000 on the direct side. So have had experience on both. Awesome. And of course, we know you have been on a bunch of podcasts, a bunch of media appearances talking about the new program that you all just launched with CalSTRS. I want to frame the conversation just talking about that. Even though we'll focus more on the media side of things, I want to make sure that the audience is aware of that new program uh, because I think it it will help further the conversation. Awesome. Yeah, so we were really excited to announce in mid-September that what we've done is we've um, taken on the Cal- – let back up and say CalSTRS, to their ever-amazing credit, has been investing in emerging managers – both on the private equity as well as the venture side now for decades. And they've been running a specific program for the last, I think since early 2000s, which we've acquired. So we've acquired a legacy portfolio of theirs of emerging managers, as well as the go forward. So with them, we'll be focusing on emerging managers in US venture. So I'm going to say this again, because I know sometimes folks get confused. And it's the work that we do with CalSTRS for emerging managers is US VCs investing in US companies. But we'll be taking their their go forward on that um, to do. And we now at September and and we're very excited. And for CalSTRS, for people that don't know them, they are the world's largest educator pension. So they have all the teachers' pensions in California. And we feel a immense amount of gratitude and responsibility to be investing their money. Yeah, absolutely. Huge, huge deal. And so so for the emerging managers listening, what do you look for? Right. And I and I think a question for myself, honestly, is how does it differ from fund one to fund three, right? Because Harlem Capital is on fund two, right? Fundraising for fund three. So I'm curious, obviously the criteria, the process internally that you do for your diligence must change over time, right? So so how does that evolve and, and what are you really looking for over that evolution? So parts of it do evolve because you as a manager evolves. Our process doesn't really change. We use the same process. We also invest in established managers. We use the same process. We use the same filter, and the filter is if you're predominantly investing into Series A exposure, we look at can this fund be a 3x net? What needs to be true? Do we believe it's possible? If it's a seed or pre-seed, we look at can it be a 5x net? And that filter is true regardless, regardless. And we would do later stage investments and use the same criteria. It's just harder to see. I wish that it happens, but it's harder to see a $3 billion later stage vehicle being a 3x net. I mean, I know it has happened, but like that's why we focus where we focus. It's our return potential. Um, what changes is the data that you have to work with and how and then it um, moves with the data, right? And so if it's a fund one, you have to look at things like, what is what has Nicole done prior to this fund that would give me reason to believe that she has this potential to be this kind of investor? And then what kind of fund is she putting together? And does that feel resonant with the opportunity set you're going for and the entrepreneurs and all that? And then as you progress from fund one, two, and three, you get more data points on what the firm looks like and you can understand better how it's coming together. Even if it's a solo GP, right? There's just different nuances and portfolio selection. What kind of companies are resonating? How are you choosing to go to market? All those things. How are you competing? You you have more data to understand. 
Um, but it's it's not it's the same filter as you just have different inputs. Got it. And so so what are those specific inputs that you look for, right? So let's say let's say it's a fund one emerging manager, right? Maybe they've done some angel investments. Is that what you're looking for? Or if they're targeting diverse founders, do they have the proper networks to access those diverse founders or the, that top talent? So I guess like what are the tangible inputs that people can focus on? And if I'm pitching Beezer as a fund one manager, right? What what do you want to see from me? Yep. Well, we did, in case we want to put it in the speaker notes, we do have a landing page where we talk a bit about the parts we really like. This sounds very old school, but it really helps us process is to get a deck in advance with certain components. And I would say somebody the other day, shout out, I don't, I didn't ask their permission to say their name, but they sent me a Lou video that gave a, like three minutes of talking points over the, over the PowerPoint. And it was amazing. Amazing. If I could wave a magic wand and have that happen always, it was just the best because I, I get why people do video submissions now is all I can say. And it's dumb and I should have realized earlier, but. But we so what we talk about on this page about what we want to see is the team. We really want to know who the people are, what you've done, not just the logos of the schools, but talk to us about who you are as people that so that we can translate what it is you're then going to invest in. And I would say the closer the similarities are, the easier it is to understand. It's not that one can't pivot and change, it just needs more translation at that point. Right. And we again, because we are what's called an institutional LP, we're trying to understand. How much do you understand of the venture market? And have you managed somebody else's money before? Because again, like we're investing teachers' pensions, which is very different from someone who's investing their own capital and use different risks tolerances. So we are running an emerging manager program, but I don't think we would, we haven't yet, let me put it this way, invested in somebody who's never invested somebody else's capital, even if it's just at the scout level or angel list. Um, they're just, you know, do need folks to be audited. There are things like that, which if you're running your first five or $10 million fund, you don't have to. And that's, that's great. Right. And what should lean into that and have that experience, but we'll be looking for those kind of pieces of information. And we want to know if you have invested, what kind of check sizes, what are you looking at doing? And then how, what are you looking at with your portfolio construction in this new vehicle. And again, we're looking for how does that align? If you've written 5K or 10K checks, now you want to write a million dollar check of being slightly different ends of the spectrum here. That's a big jump. It, again, it doesn't mean to say you can't do it, but we want to understand that's what you're looking at. Versus if you were writing 200K checks before and you're writing 200K checks, again, like that's an easier thing to say, oh, I understand your playbook. And we also... The other part that's harder to bring out in PowerPoint, although I've seen people do it, is the really the wide you. Like to your to your um, to your example, the underrepresented founder. Yes, there are a lot of them for reasons that are painful, right? Like there's a lot of folks that don't get a fair shake in the system, but that alone is not sufficient, right? Why are they going to pick you? What is you? You raise that you, you could be an LP. Come be an LP, right? What is the network that you have? Why are they going to pick you? And then the other part that we're listening for is what are you looking for in their business that makes you think it can be a significantly large business? And we do have a preference for software-heavy companies. And I know venture has expanded into other scopes, but as a preference, we, we like to understand that. And so I know it's a lot to say to put it to a deck. It's not impossible, but those are the things that we're really trying to understand. So out of out of curiosity from a numbers perspective, how many decks do you get and how many calls or initial calls do you take? Oh, you know, I don't 
run these numbers and we stopped. But here's what I can tell you. Um, we do get, you know, um, we got a few hundred in the last two months. So like we get, I don't know if that equates to a thousands per year. Well, there are now thousands of emerging managers and that's just emerging managers. And because we also work in Europe and Israel, we have other ge geographies too. And this is one of the reasons why we can tack into this, that we try to heavily leverage social media and open LP so that we can have one-to-many and many-to-many -many channels. Because I, I don't, if you have a way of hacking more than having 24 hours in your day, I mean, like, let me know how you do it. Because I'm sure a gazillion entrepreneurs try to talk to you. And we don't have enough time in the day. And so we have developed these these, one of the reasons why we do what we do is because we think it's in service to the industry. And it allows us to connect with a lot more folks than we can do if we're just trying to do back-to-back -back Zooms. So we, we do it, and we do have a team. It's not just me, obviously, but I try to I try to underscore that because the only reason why Sapphire Partners is who we are is because we're a team. And it's it's really integral to how we go to market and how we how we make our magic happen. Totally, totally. I mean, for for us, we're we're a team of seven now. So we have uh, six members in the U.S., one uh, in the Philippines, who's in the A. And we also we extend our twenty four hours in a day by our intern program because we double our team size three times a year. So it's a little trick. It's our secret sauce as a firm. They do amazing work for us. They help us on the deal side. They do projects. They do our media. So some of the blog posts are written by our interns. And so anyway, I don't know if you want to start an intern program at Sapphire Partners, but it, it does help. It does help. Well, if one of your interns wants to tell me how to run an intern program that could help do that, I'm all in. I because that, that would be an interesting learning curve. I don't know if there's that many people that want to intern as an LP. I think more people want to intern as a GP, but I'm open to it. I'm happy to learn from you guys. I mean, I think you could get some people. I think you could get some some folks, but we'll we'll chat offline about that because I think it could add twenty more than twenty four hours in your day. Um, last note on this new program before we move on to media and its superpowers. I'm curious when you're looking at new EMs and you mentioned this, how much of their uh, portfolio construction do you look at? So, do generalists win? Do specialists win? Thesis driven? whether they lead deals or participate, like how much of that fund construction are you looking at? And you said software is your main like goal as a, as a company that they invest in, but anything outside of that? So I would say what we are not allocating to is sort of healthcare specific activities. Like Calsters has done healthcare work and they're using that at different vehicles. So we are not doing healthcare, healthcare. Um, and then we also have a portfolio allocation strategy, just like GPs do. So you, we might find that at any given year, we are fully allocated to a certain area within software. But within those caveats, we're very open-minded. Um, so the the simplest answer is we want to understand as much as you are willing to share with us. Because I do see things I think will make it much harder for GPs to achieve a 3x or a 5x. But there's always something new for us to learn and how they do it. So I'm not opposed to a generalist or specialist. We don't have pre we don't have pre-subscribed ways of saying you can't or it has to be it has to be concentrated. It has it can't be X, Y, and Z. We learn every day, but there are certain guardrails that we can say, which is I'm going to be hyperbolic. If you want to do a billion dollar fund and only have a one percent stake in two thousand companies, the math is going to work against you. But that doesn't mean to say you can't, we've seen success be done in a multitude of ways. And that's one of the things that I adore about venture. But I would say a lot of emerging managers 
just haven't had the experience set to then understand what does this mean for my potential outcomes? And an LP like us is going to think that way. So it could be that we're just not the right LP at this time while someone's trying to figure out what they want to do, or we're going to ask them, this is part of why we provide this information, is to know you need to think through this. If you want to raise this kind of capital, you have to be prepared to think to understand how your portfolio is going to work. Um, but there are successful syndication strategies. All of this just demands, if I back it up, I would say the people that I see being successful, if I was to do a trend line, it's really folks that sit down and really think through what's happening. And everyone calls it first principles. I think these terms get thrown around and then people don't dig into what it means. And my experience over the last year is the folks that are coming through this time, the established as well as the emerging managers, really are sitting down and saying, what do we believe is true about us as investors? What do we believe about the world? How do we do this? What do we need to do to have the kind of firm and the kind of fund that we want? And if they can express that perspective, like that's authentic and unique and it's really powerful. And I just, you just see this consistently in the market and it's, and it can come in any shape and form, which is part of the awesome diversity of the ecosystem. Yeah. When, during our, our diligence process, we sort of have those questions of like teasing out if you're being authentic about what you're building, right? Which is so important for longevity. And some of the questions we ask me, what keeps you up at night? What does success look like outside of like a monetary gain? Right. So it's like trying to be like, tease out that authenticity and are you doing what what you sort of want to be doing? And does it make sense for you? Right. Like being truly introspective of like, am I the person, the best person on this planet to do what I'm trying to do? Yes. And it's also venture is incredibly long term. So long term. <laughs> so long term. And I I fear that a lot of people that have started in venture in the last five years and let me caveat this and say, I think it's totally fine if people decide not to continue to do funds. Don't abandon your portfolio companies. But it's, you know, each vehicle is like 15 to 18 to 20 years. And this is not for just a hard tech. Like software vehicles of the greats that you've heard of are still 18 years old, right? And that is the first fund. It is a long, long term. <laughs> so if you want to do something and dabble or try, which we all should, I would say raising for institutional LPs it might not be the best way of doing it. Like there are other vehicles now in the market, which is phenomenal, like AngelList or you could do family, like sort of family and friends and different ways of saying, I want to try this for, I don't know, five years, 10 years, and then maybe I'll be done. Um, it's just a really different road. And I, I think it's become so common to think, oh, well, I'll just start a venture fund. It's not, you're like, you're kind of building a financial institution that's supposed to be around for 40 years. Like that is not. Like it's longer than marriages. Like your kid's not going to be at home that long. Like all these things is really long term. Right up. There are fewer long term decisions you could make in your life. Truly. Oh, being an LP is probably the only one. <laughs> yeah, being an LP is probably the only one. Okay, I want to shift gears into talking about media and its superpowers. And I am very curious in digging in with you on the difference of using social media as an emerging manager versus an established manager. And I think internally at Harlem Capital, we go back and forth a lot about this. We use media as a strategy for us. Obviously, we have over 600K followers across all of our channels, across the team. And it has gotten us indoors that we otherwise probably wouldn't have gotten in if we didn't have that media presence. And I think for Harlem Capital, you know, back five, seven years ago, we had to create the market in a lot of ways, right? The diversity market almost didn't exist as a concept, right? And so we used media as a way to propel that market forward and bring awareness. 
But I think now, obviously, emerging managers have the choice to be on social media or not. And so I'm curious, from an LP perspective that invests in emerging managers, how do you think about social media presence? And I think, you know, building a brand, you can build a brand without social media, but but curious how you really view having a media following in your diligence process or as a way to build a brand. I'm just curious. I think, well, let me first say congratulations. I amazingly impressive what you guys have built and the social media and all the followership and all of really, I've loved following your Twitter and I learn from your Twitter all the time. And I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. Is it what people are thinking and doing? And and how does it work? And so that's that's my favorite kind of social media. So let me and I know it takes a lot of work, right? The other part of it, I know you talked about this a bit on your podcast you dropped with Nicole Wischoff. Like it's not without its effort. And the right. And so so one of the things that I think about when we're when we're working when we're talking to funds and they're explaining why they're doing what they're doing and if they don't if they have social media and they're not talking about it we'll always invite them to talk about it is how does it support your strategy and it it can be a range right you gave so many great points as to why it can be super supportive of strategy but if someone is spending a significant amount of time even if it's only an hour a day that still adds up um how does that benefit the strategy? Like all parts of this should be leading the firm forward or feeding you as a human so that you can then lead the firm forward in other ways. It can be a range of reasons. Um, but understanding why is always, we always just lead with that. Like, how's it working? Why is it working? And then I'm always personally curious, what can I learn from how it's done? Because I don't think, I think we're also scratching the surface, to be honest. Like, go people on TikTok. Oh my goodness, I have no idea how to do that. That's it's so fascinating. And the reds. I mean, it's just, it's always evolving. Um, so we're not, if the question is, are you opposed? No, but we want to understand why. And I would also say, and we hold ourselves to the standard too. There's times when I literally am like, I can't do social media right now. I got, I got the day job is very important and I have to go focus on that. And the team goes to focus on that. And we, and so there's times when we basically just peace out because we're like, we got to go do stuff. And people are like, why are you tweeting about X, Y, Z? And you're like, well, I'm doing X, Y, Z. So it's sort of the nice way of saying if it, beca- if it feels like someone is spending a disproportionate amount of time doing something that's might be fun for them as individuals, but is it necessarily supportive of the firm side, but they're doing it during sort of firm hours, for lack of a better way of saying it? Like, we're also sensitive to that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So so it's more about proving that the social media is bringing some tangible ROI, whether it's increasing your sourcing funnel, so, things like that. Brand and I would say I, I'm not this. I'm not the expert on this. A lawyer would be better on this than I would be. But one of the things I've found it's amazing about social media, and this started with rolling funds, and we've seen it now with the um, ability to incorporate a fund that allows for public discussion around your fundraising. It is amazing to me in the best possible way how funds get raised essentially on social media, which I don't think, given the given the rules against pre marketing, you could do before. And also some of the social stigma, which I think is weird and I don't understand it, but but it definitely seems to be one of those things where people didn't want to talk about it in advance. And the what I've seen emerging managers do, which I just think is fantastic, is the build in public, the the community support community, the celebration, the hey, I'm hosting an event, please come. There's rolling funds that I have don't have the um permission to name, but I do not think they would have existed if they tried to come to market in a traditional manner. Possibly because they didn't have the track record, but they they need to build the track record to then prove to other people, or they were non traditional backgrounds, and 
again, for all the systemic and ism flaws in the system, um, they may have had been really challenged to fundraise, and yet they've been able to fundraise now. And again, it presumes some level of marketing capabilities, but if they had that tool set, being able to deploy it on behalf of fundraising versus the, do you know, five people that sit in large endowments, which is its own skill set, but is, is exclusionary. I just think, so I think it's phenomenal. Like I have just been so happy to watch that over the last, I don't know what you think, five, six, it definitely predated COVID, but it got accelerated during COVID. Yeah. And I guess the, the question is, you're very open to having a media presence if it is fruitful for the fund. When you look at your LP peers, what would you say sentiment is across that set, right? Because I think they're, you know, it's a it's a pretty um, contrarian view, it seems, for most to have a large media following in the finance space, right? It can have its negatives, but I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what do your LP peers think? And if an emerging manager is going to you, but also going to your peers, do you think they're going to be met with a bit of backlash uh, because of their audience? Oh, that's an interesting question. I I don't have a definitive answer. I have not surveyed. Um, I would assume that they were able to translate into this is how it works for us. It would be receptive because and the analogies I'm drawing, before the days of social media, you'd have GPs doing conferences, other ways of amassing brand and many-to-many. -many. And for those that could utilize it in a way that generated Again, the same things, the same net attributes, right? Deal flow, insights, connectivity, new network expansion. I saw LPs backing those funds. So my presumption is some LPs liked it. Maybe some LPs didn't, but it was there was enough out there that they could build, they could build a, a base. When you sent me the questions, I was thinking of analogies in like the old days. And it's and we just use conferences and people set up their own conference series and people used, I, I should have pulled the date on this. It was so long ago, like this, the original Sequoia Rest in Peace pitch deck. I mean, it's not social media by definition. And Sequoia obviously had a very strong brand prior to that. But I mean, it, everybody was talking about it. I'm not sure it made the cover of the Wall Street Journal, but everybody was talking about it. So there was tools that people used way back when. And again, these funds were funded, so LPs had to be receptive. Now, are there some that would think it's not the new way of doing social media? Is it all the negatives? That is it distracting? Is it too much in public? I think there are some things I've seen LPs. I think LPs can also, I would say this, when people are posting things in public, be conscious that you're posting it in public. Um, some people post very personal things. Like I do not post my son on Twitter. If you want to see pictures of my son, you have to come on the podcast and you have to be friends with me on my personal, my personal social media because it's just, I'm not going to talk about what I had for breakfast. I'm unlikely to talk about when I'm walking down a street. Like I keep it very in the land of here is this is useful LP information. Um, but I love the fact that I can, if people are willing to share other aspects, I can understand their day. But it does mean you're telling people about your day, and it can be two sided. I don't know. How do you choose what you what you do and don't do? So, I think it's funny, right? Because when I started my journey at Harlem Capital. They suggested that I have a media presence to build my brand, but I didn't know how to do that because I personally don't use social media that much. And so I basically picked five topics that I thought I could be uniquely qualified to talk about. And 
whittled them down. So I A-B tested them every day. I tweeted twice, once in the morning, once at night, about those same five topics for a few months. I realized very quickly that there were some topics nobody wanted to hear from me about, and that was totally fine. So I started cutting them down, right? So I went from five topics to four, to three, to two, to one, which is now demystifying VC. And all of it was done very methodically, actually. And that's how I choose what I post, right? And now I feel like I have a good I have a good pulse on what I know will do well and what people want to see. And I am almost always right about it. And I think um, what I've learned about what to post is people want niche content and they want to know what to come to you for, right? And so if people hear somebody ask, how do I break into VC? More often than not, people are going to say, go to Nicole's Twitter. She has a lot of resources there. Or go to Nicole's LinkedIn. She has a lot of resources there. And I've had VCs come up to me and say, you've made my life easy because I just redirect people. And so I think even though it seems like maybe I just fell into demystifying VC, it was very much a project and it was very, very methodical in the way that I I went about it. And I just listened to the audience, really. It's funny because nobody actually knows that it was this unsexy thing. Right. It, I literally said to myself, I was like, if I have to build a media presence, I have to treat it like any other work project. How am I going to get it done? And there was there was a divorcing of it from like personal social media and, you know, my relationship with it in my every day. Right. I had to like mentally get out of that and just realize that like any other project, you have to get it done. And that's that's what happened. Um, but I do want to ask you. Is there ever a, is there such a thing as too much exposure for funds in your eyes? Uh, That's an interesting question. I would imagine it's not impossible, right? I think it gets to the question you had about do people, do LPs perceive it being distracting? Because the analogy I make is, and this is very stereotypical, but like back in the day was how many hours a day are you spending time golfing, Mr. or Mrs. VC? And is that useful for doing deals? And it used to be, believe it or not, I know this sounds so old fashioned, but people used to say, oh, and it probably was very true to some extent, was, oh, but I do all these deals on the golf course. So it's very useful. And literally, so my son is a few years from going to college and I'm like, I am going to learn how to golf as my like empty nest project because I want to go out there and do these deals. I'm so excited. I'm probably like three decades too late, but I'm all about it. Let me know how to learn. I'll be caddy. I'll I'll figure it out. It also becomes a question of if it's one person in the firm that's carrying the torch, then like let's say like on the beautiful side of things, like Fred Wilson was like such an important venture blogger for so so long, and he still is. He's cut down his pace of it, but he had a whole firm. So the fact that the rest of the folks at Union Square, they all now are very involved, but like back in the day, he was really sort of down front. Um, and like, is that is that too much? No, because there's a lot of people involved and he was a very active investor, so it worked. But are there other people that you could look at and say, how do you actually get your work done? It's not impossible, but I mean, now we do have ghostwriters and now we have AI and we have all these tools. So I guess I'm just repeating the same thing, which is I think the bar people could be aware of is an LP could ask the question of how are you getting your day job done? And as long as that or... There could be times when so much information is shared, it could be a turnoff. Like people will ask me about certain VCs and I'm like, hey, you don't need to ask me. Like just look at their LinkedIn or Twitter and you'll see exactly what they think. And you can like it or not like it, but they're putting it out there. And that's, I mean, talk about simplified diligence. I think it's great. Yeah. 
I guess it's also a matter of the thoughtfulness that will, what you're posting, right? Is it relevant to the job? Are you, you know, stirring controversy around your fund? I imagine in those ways, that's where exposure can definitely be too much, right? And so I think the thoughtfulness around the posts matter. Are you talking about, I think, the kind of sort of like getting getting canceled and then things of that nature and how people think through those choices? Yeah, or or I guess, you know, there's a lot of VCs who have a lot of opinions on things outside of maybe, you know, what they're uniquely qualified to talk about. <laughs> and I think there are some people who like controversy for the sake of controversy, right? And so I think in those ways, that's when like there can almost be too much exposure. Or I think it goes back to your point of like personal pages versus professional pages. One lies under the fund name and that brand versus one is sort of your personal brand and posting. So I don't know. It's I I know I personally steer clear of most personal things on my pages because it is my professional outlet. And like you say, if you want to see personal Nicole, there are pages for that, right? But um, professional Nicole has a very niche topics that she covers, <laughs> right? And I'm talking third person as if it's not me. <laughs> but um, I want to shift gears a bit. And I want to talk about the importance of social media to you because I've learned an incredible amount from your page. I've learned an incredible amount from OpenLP. And obviously, as you said earlier in this conversation, it takes a lot of time, right? And it, and I'm curious, what propels you to share as much information as you do? And sort of where did OpenLP as a concept come from? The underlying question is, how does one get up every day? And we've been doing this now for over a decade. Um, which is a long time. I'm not as prolific as you are. OpenLP is now more prolific, but the, I appreciate I'm not saying we start tweeting five times a day from day one, but we've been doing OpenLP and the thought leadership that we then, I personally and different folks on my team do um, for quite a while now. The motivation is, I think there's a core underlying motivation for me personally, um, and that ties into Sapphire Partners because I I think it's hypocritical for me to say, oh, what are you GP doing on social media that's supporting the firm and then have an LP or me personally be like, oh, but I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. Like we hold ourselves to the same standard, which is if, if I'm going to commit my time during the day, right, which I see as Sapphire's time. And if we as Sapphire, you know, launched OpenLP and maintain it and do all the work behind it for the last 10 years, um, if we're going to do that, it has to be strategic for the firm. Right. And, but but we need the energy to get up every day and to care. Otherwise, it's not the right initiative and we should do something else. So the, the long-winded short answer to your question is, when I started in venture 20 years ago, these things didn't exist. And I really intrinsically feel it's important. Like I really feel the venture industry is a wonderful place, but there is still so much better it could be. And I personally would like to be able to help make it the place that I wish that it was when I started 20 years ago. And that's my personal motivation. But then I have to gut check that with, and how is the expression of this then useful for Sapphire partners and LPs and a different path, but getting to the same place that you ended up, which is, well, what are we uniquely capable of doing? What does the industry need? What can we maintain? And so you're doing the demystifying the path into venture. We're sort of doing demystifying the LPGP universe which is humongous, right? So there's endless things to be done. To your point, there's not as many topics that people are interested in as there are topics out there. There's definitely some topics that resonate 
far more with everybody than others. So we're trying to refocus some of this stuff. Some of the niche things can be very powerful, but there's they, they are very niche Like, do we want to talk about management fees for a whole podcast? So, and then part of what I believe from observing the world, and it really works with how I think is also useful for us, is that you can get out there every single day and talk about what do I personally pick on me? What does Beezer believe? Like, or I could try to find something, and this is how OpenLP came about when we were ideating. It was well, what serves a greater mission? Because I, I mean, on the end of the day, who wants to hear from one person all the time? Yes, if you are, you know, an incredibly brilliant thought leader with thirty years of experience doing something, and I will listen to so many people that are experts. But when you're starting out, that's just not the case, and there's just not that many people either on the other side of the line. So we're like, what do we do that's useful for the ecosystem and that we can learn and they'll learn and we can all bring people together? And there was not a platform that amplified other people's voices. And that's part of the magic that we felt OpenLP did was it's not just our voice. Like we contribute heavily to it, especially at times like now where there's a dearth of other LP content, but we're really happy to step aside and let other people's content rule the day on both OpenLP and I'm happy to you know retweet things, although OpenLP does more of that um, just for a time and bandwidth. That's the purpose of it. Um, because if you can generate more LPs coming to the table or GPs talking about these topics, it's better. We're smarter. You're smarter. The world's smarter. I don't I just fundamentally, as an investor, do not think the arbitrage out there should be that Nicole knows how to make a data room better than Beezer. Like if that's, or let me reverse it. If that's my only competitive advantage, that's a crappy competitive advantage from a longtime investor standpoint. So like that, like there's no need on that. It, it also should be known how hard it is to return a 3x fund. Because then when emerging managers are starting out, it will not be like, well, what do I need to do? Like, these are things that are not taught in school. There's a whole bunch of financial information that's not taught in school that sort of burned me over the years where you're like, why don't we talk about 401ks? Why don't we talk about how to balance a checkbook? These things should all be in high school. Why are we not teaching it? Anyway, long, long winded answer. But that's all the things that get us up and going. And that's why we created OpenLP. And then there's all the other side effects that you talked about. We meet new people. I know people online that I don't get a chance to meet in person always. They know me, we know them, they know my partners. Um, all those lovely things happen. Yeah, I really like the point that you made around, you know how to make a data room better than I do, which doesn't actually mean anything, right? It's just an access and education point, which I think is is the issue within the VC, LP, GP space in general, right? It's people don't have access. Right. And I, I think it's the same on the venture side, right? Where it's like, if you're interviewing for a job and you don't know the structure of the interview, but your counterpart does, you're obviously not going to succeed as well as your counterpart because you just didn't have access to the information on how to prep. Right. And so it's, it's the same, it's the same thing. And I know I really appreciate the LP work that you do and publish because even sitting as a junior at a VC firm, access to LPs and that type of information isn't ubiquitous. Right. And, you know, we're not LP facing because we're not GPs. And so I think even from a, a junior perspective, like it has been it's been amazing uh, to see all the work that that you're doing there. So very much, very much appreciated. I can I, I can thank you on behalf of the whole ecosystem. Well, thank you. It's good to hear because it's I mean, I was a junior person at a firm and I didn't know. I mean, I didn't even know what an LP was when I was in a venture firm because you're not responsible for fundraising. So why should you? 
And I got to tell you, there's a whole number of very experienced investors who are GPs who are also not primary on the LP relationship because a lot of firms will end up focusing it for all sorts of awesome you know, efficiency reasons. But it then also means that a lot of the information, not just who LPs are and what they care about, but how to, what does that then mean for potentially super boring, but very important for returns? Like what about reserves? What about liquidity? What about follow-on? All that information isn't necessarily discussed. Just so it, and anyway, all of that exists. We've lived it. We've walked it. We believe in it. So we try to create this to be in service to everybody in venture. Okay. But I would say this again, like it is really hard industry to break into. I got very lucky breaking into it. And part of it is the, I just think the, that, um, the inequality of education is just not helpful and, and doing all that we can to sort of democratize that you're like, this, this is, it's hard enough to pick great companies like that. The other stuff should just be table stakes. Exactly. Exactly. And I know we're coming up on time. So final, final question for you. If I'm in a emerging manager wanting to raise my fund today, what do you have to say about the market? What advice do you have on approaching LPs at this particular moment? It, it is harder. Not going to sugarcoat it. It's definitely a more difficult market. Um, if you are an emerging manager that has not invested somebody else's capital, I would definitely encourage folks to spend time thinking through some of these support structures at AngelList and Rolling Funds, being a scout, doing all those things to get some experience, and then building up a, do you really want to do this for the next, I don't know, what are we talking, 40 years? Um, four zero, not four. And then as well as, it could also be you want to join a platform. I think the path that you took is is underlooked in some respects. By Everyone thinks they should just start their own fund. And there's awesome reasons for doing that. There's also really awesome reasons for going to join a platform and understanding how the business works and then potentially spitting out later. Um for folks that are already on the path and are one and two, I do think understanding the LP perspective, which is right now, it's very hard to understand valuations. Um, like it, they're just really. This is an established manager challenge. This is this is an industry wide challenge. Valuations are kind of all over the place. They're resettling. There's a lots of reasons. Whatever. There's a whole mess we know is out there on the internet. You know, I don't need to explain it. But understanding how to talk about your portfolio development at a pretty granular level that's not just TVPI, but where are my companies at, product market fit, how are they growing, what kinds of businesses are they, are they cash burn heavy, are they operating margin, all those nuances. Being able to communicate that and the positivities there is very important. And if and being being conscious that it might take longer, and that is traditionally how it worked. The myth, the last few years were an aberration. It's not the norm. So you're not going through something that's not uncommon. It doesn't make it better, but it's it's how venture used to be. Um, so it takes a little bit of time and it's going to be tough. And I'm just going to open up the door. It might not be for everybody. And we are hearing, I don't think, uh, shockingly, people are not telling me this, but I'm certainly hearing about it in the market that some merging managers want to merge with others. They don't want to do it as a loan. So and hang up their skates, skis, whatever the right sneaker analogy is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all of these are things to consider. I, I just think these markets, as a GP said to me, there's a certain level of commercial that a successful fund has to be willing and a successful investor has to be willing to live with. And I think some folks are experiencing that maybe they don't want to do it and that's fine too. And other folks are going to say, you know what, it's tougher, but like bring it on. 
right? Because this is this is the time to dig in and really understand how it works. Because when the good times come back, we know what to do, right? I would say like, I always offer this. I've had all 360 in my career. The first fund I started, we shut down. That was not fun. Um, going through down markets teaches you a ton. You are learning incredibly important lessons right now and carry them forward because they will pay off in spades. Totally. That is, that's great advice and honest. And that's what we, we love. Um, okay, Beezer, thank you so much for joining me. I want one last question. Where can people find you and where can they find OpenLP? Sure. So OpenLP.com. Um, it's also a hashtag on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter as Beezer232. The 232 is a legacy joke. <laughs> from so from literally from 2000 pretty much so sorry that's the backstory rather podcast um it was a joke on me which i thought was funny so i carried it forward uh, and on our sapphire partners homepage, you can find the link to the landing page that goes into more depth about what we like to see in a powerpoint and i can give it to you and you can stick it in the speaker notes if that's helpful fantastic this was jam-packed with great advice for for emerging managers so thank you so much for joining me today thank you for the work that you do it's awesome